Welcome back to The Reeducation. Today's show examines the legacy of J. Edgar Hoover. For most Americans today, Hoover is a cartoon villain, a cross-dressing eavesdropper, a jowly reactionary whose agents urged Martin Luther King to kill himself. My guest is Yale historian Beverly Gage, and her new comprehensive biography of J. Edgar Hoover is brilliant. It's a human portrait that is both scathing and fair. You could say she complicates the legacy of a dangerous man without apologizing for or excusing his many sins. So in this episode, we tackle the original G-Man in all of his glorious and sinister contradictions. In 1924, during the Coolidge administration, Hoover took over the then scandal-ridden bureau. Thus began a service that spanned eight presidencies in almost half a century. The eight presidents under whom he worked, both Democratic and Republican, gave Hoover virtually a free hand to run an FBI he had cleared of political factionalism and made into an investigative organization envied around the world for its efficiency and high standards. Yet toward the later years of his life, Hoover came under increasing criticism from liberals who saw his operations as a big brother type threat to civil liberties. He was accused of using the FBI as his own public relations instrument and his preoccupation with the threat of communism seemed dated. Yet Hoover himself saw communism as a real threat to the security of America. That was Walter Cronkite summing up how J. Edgar Hoover was viewed by the American public on the day of his expiration. In a sense, you could say that the G-man's death was well-timed. In his final year, his position was politically and culturally more perilous than probably any time in his near half-century atop the FBI. Progressives, who always distrusted Hoover, now despised him. Liberal Democrats in Congress, who only a few years earlier would have never deigned to attack him in public, delivered floor speeches urging the 77-year-old to retire. Inside the Bureau, some of his most important protégés had left or were eased out, and those that did remain were keeping information from Hoover because they had judged him to be in his senescence. To get a sense of the mood of the country at the time of Hoover's death in 1972, I'm going to play this clip from Jesse Jackson. It's a sermon in 1970, and it's about Jesus and the centurion soldier, but you'll see how it relates to the FBI of this era. Y'all know the story of him putting the CIA man on Jesus, calling the centurion soldier. He had a high rank. Jesus was considered a rabble-rouser who was stirring up the people, forcing the people to disrespect the authorities. And they said, we got to get a case on them. That's what they build up on guys like Bobby. Mm -hmm. Dr. King, that's why they got my phone tapped. And they got a lot of other people's phone tapped. They call it building up the case. It didn't just not start. Because I might say in passing, most of what they heard me say on telephone, I repeat again. Now, despite this growing awareness that the FBI were a bunch of secretive eavesdroppers and break-in specialists, there were still millions of Americans in 1972, most of them on the right, that revered J. Edgar Hoover. Now, Young Americans for Freedom, that conservative youth group still around today, for example, sponsored an essay contest involving Hoover's polemic about communism called Masters of Deceit. Politicians on the right still defended him, and that was largely in part because he was taking the slings and arrows from a new left that the right at the time despised. And for the half of the country that still loved Hoover in 1972, he remained this incorruptible, tough-minded anti-communist that he'd always been. That public image was 
well-crafted over decades with Hoover and the FBI in contact with allies in the media and particularly in Hollywood. Here's an example from a 1935 promotional film with the great title, You Won't Get Away With It. There are three needs in America today in law enforcement. The elimination of politics from law enforcement, emphasis on efficiency, and cooperation between police agencies. We should all be concerned with but one goal, the eradication of crime. The Federal Bureau of Investigation is as close to you as your nearest telephone. It seeks to be your protector in all matters within its jurisdiction. It belongs to you. That means, gangster, you can't get away with it. Okay, so in this light, one can understand why Jagger Hoover's funeral was a national event. It was as if he was a president or a great general. Hoover was laid in state at the U.S. Capitol. His actual coffin had to be bulletproof because of concerns that terrorists might try to blow it up. Even some of the Democrats, like Haley Boggs, the father of the late Cokie Roberts, who had only trashed him like a few weeks before he died, they were giving stirring tributes to this man in the well of Congress. Here's a clip from President Richard Nixon's eulogy at Hoover's funeral. I recall that President Eisenhower, a Republican, and President Johnson, a Democrat, both strongly recommended after my election that I keep him as director of the FBI. He was one of those unique individuals who, by all odds, was the best man for a vitally important job. His powerful leadership by example helped to keep steel in America's backbone and the flame of freedom in America's soul. Now, what Nixon is saying in this clip is partly true. When Nixon made his name as a congressman on the House Un-American Activities Committee, known as HUAC, when he went after a senior State Department official named Alger Hiss, who was indeed a communist agent, Jagger Hoover had spotted Nixon's talents. Unlike the drunken, sloppy demagogue Senator Joe McCarthy, Richard Nixon was a hard worker who actually got the goods. And so over the years, both Nixon and Hoover, another hard worker who often got the goods, well, they would cultivate a friendship in Washington. Not just a politically expedient one, but they, Pat Nixon and Richard Nixon would often socialize with Hoover, who never married, and his longtime companion and co-worker, Clyde Tolson. Now, that said, Nixon also was plotting to oust J. Edgar Hoover as director of the FBI in the months before he died. There's a White House tape, one of these great Nixon tapes, where he's remarking to his chief of staff, Haldeman, saying that Hoover would have rather died than give up his job and a kind of frustration. Nixon wanted the FBI at the time to step up its political war on the new left in America. He wanted the FBI to pursue his administration's leakers. He wanted more of what was known as Pro, which we will be talking a lot about in this monologue and episode. And we should say Pro is a kind of political and psychological warfare that Hoover's FBI waged against considered sort of domestic radicals. We'll just leave it at that for now. Now, here's the thing. Jagger Hoover, who, you know, was a real snoop in his own right, outmaneuvered his old friend because he didn't want the FBI engaged in all of this stepped-up domestic espionage. So he never quite told Nixon no, but he also made it clear that he would only agree to all of these increased domestic intelligence activities if the president personally 
authorized it. And Hoover knew what he's doing because Nixon was way too wily a politician to ever agree to that. Because both Hoover and Nixon understood that Cointelpro would be a scandal if and when it was ever revealed. And indeed, it would be. And this is where we kind of get to the undoing or the unraveling of the Hoover legacy. Because the year before that he died, the secrecy of Cointelpro began to be exposed. In 1971, the year before Hoover's death, a group of anti-war activists in Philadelphia broke into an FBI field office in Media, Pennsylvania, and stole reams of files. There's some great recent reporting on this when the people who were involved in that break and finally kind of revealed themselves. I really recommend it. The New York Times did a great piece on this, which I'm going to play a clip of in a moment here. Anyway, those files eventually disclosed, because at first people didn't quite know what they were looking at, the first time that the public would learn about the existence of this Pro. So here's like an early news report on this. Secret FBI memos made public today show that the late J. Edgar Hoover ordered a nationwide campaign to disrupt the activities of the new left without telling any of his superiors about it. Many of the techniques were clearly illegal. Burglaries, forged blackmail letters, and threats of violence were used. Now, you should say, this report, like all journalism, is a first draft of history. Hoover in fact, did have authorization for most phases of Cointelpro from attorneys general and presidents. It's something we should never forget that it's not like Hoover was the only one who knew about all of these activities of the FBI. It was something that ultimately he was he was savvy enough and I think would say respectful enough of the Constitution and the Republic that he was doing this on behalf of presidents and attorneys general. Okay. Now, over time, this was originally intended, Cointelpro, to go after the American Communist Party. Over time, the tactics expanded, and they started to include other people that Hoover and other presidents and the attorneys general considered to be subversives. So that would be the anti-war movement, the Black Panthers, and most shamefully, the mainstream civil rights movement and its leader, Martin Luther King. It's important at this moment to explain that Cointelpro, or Cointelpro, was not just domestic spying on Americans without a warrant, which is bad enough. It was really something that almost seems like it, sh it should have come out of the communist bloc. The intention of COINTELPRO was to sabotage and disrupt the organizations who were its targets. That meant not just wiretaps or you know microphones planted in lamps and so forth. It meant recruiting informers inside the Southern Christian Leadership Council, the network of churches that Martin Luther King helped create to advance civil rights. It meant conducting vicious whisper campaigns based in part on secrets that were learned through these wiretaps. So it wasn't just, you know, kind of hoovering up, pardon the pun, this information. It was selectively deploying it in really vicious ways to cause dissent within the ranks of an organization or shame on the head of a personal leader. So... If you really want to get a sense of the worst excesses of this program, here is a clip that pretty much reveals it. Uh, the Bureau went so far as to mail anonymous letters to Dr. King and his wife, which were mailed shortly before he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, and finishes with this suggestion. King, there is only one thing left for you to do. You know what it is. You have just 34 days in which to do it. This exact number has been selected for a specific reason. It has definite practical significance. It was 34 days before the award. You are done. That voice we just heard was Frederick Schwartz. He was the 
majority counsel of the church committee, that's the Senate committee, that looked at the intelligence community as well as the FBI in 1975-1976. And it was the first time that the public learned that the FBI had written an anonymous poison pen letter to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as he was preparing to accept the Nobel Peace Prize, I might add. And in that letter, it implied, I should say, that if you do not kill yourself, we will reveal your extramarital affairs and adultery. It's hard to get one's mind around something like this. You know, it's one thing for the FBI to surveil and sabotage the American Communist Party as a cat's paw of the Kremlin, and it was, by the way, a cat's paw of the Kremlin, or even around operations against the Weather Underground, which were domestic terrorists, but to set out to destroy and undermine one of America's greatest heroes, the leader of a nonviolent movement that achieved civil and voting rights for black Americans in the teeth of abhorrent state terror in the South. It's an incredible story, an incredible accomplishment of the civil rights movement. Well, it's just indefensible to think that the FBI would be that much on the wrong side of history and that, that sort of evil. You know, and I have no desire to defend the FBI here. But as you know, as a listener of the re-education, I do love history because it tends to complicate our easy moral judgments. And the truth of the matter is, is that the story of how the FBI tried to destroy and failed to destroy the civil rights movement is more complicated than an allegory about a racist FBI director against a flawless civil rights pastor. Okay, so let's begin the story during the John F. Kennedy administration. And it was around this time that the FBI, I should say, learned from two extraordinary sources that were under this program called SOLO, which was like a super top state secret for decades. They had great sources inside the American Communist Party, brothers Morris and Jack Childs. And these members of the party were so trusted that they were often emissaries that were sent to the Kremlin and the capitals of other communist states where they would sort of be these like international representatives. So they weren't just great sources for the activities of the American Communist Party, which never really posed much of a threat, but they gave the FBI great intelligence about, you know, sort of their face-to-face meetings with various Soviet premiers. Anyways, the Childs brothers began reporting that a lawyer named Stanley Levison was also a secret member of the American Communist Party. Levison was, at the time, one of Martin Luther King's closest advisors. He helped incorporate, doing the sort of legal work to incorporate, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. While he acknowledged that, you know, in his youth, he was a member of the Communist Party, as many people were in the 20th century, in his middle-aged, he claimed to have cut his ties with it, which he didn't do. It wasn't true. As my guest Beverly Gudge writes in her new biography, Jack Childs was reporting that Levison was running a series of secret financial fronts to fund the American Communist Party, using his bourgeois respectability to basically kind of create this financial front. This was a secret that was kept from most of the party itself. Also, King did not know that Levison played this role for the American Communist Party. King believed that this was all a smear. But the information was accurate, and the dilemma for Hoover was that he could not reveal his source on this without compromising where he got it from, that program known as Solo within the Bureau, and his golden sources, the Childs Brothers. So this is now, I think, 1962 or 63. And the plan was for Robert F. Kennedy, the attorney general and Hoover's boss, and of course, brother of John F. Kennedy, to, you know, press King in a personal meeting to distance himself from Levison. And also another member of the Communist Party that was suspected who also was in and around King. But the real issue was Levison. And King resisted. He wanted to see the proof that his friend and confidant, Stanley Levison, was a communist agent. And it was a standoff because Hoover was not going to turn over that information. He actually 
declined at one point to charge Levison in it wasn't his decision, but he didn't want Levison to be charged in court because he would have to potentially reveal this, you know, intelligence that he had, which he wanted to protect at all costs. Anyway, as a result, Martin Luther King kind of like, you know, semi lied to the Kennedys and said he would cut off contact, but yet he continued to see Levison through other con. He sort of had he, he did it more carefully because the whole time King just thought he was getting the runaround and he really wasn't a member of the Communist Party. He didn't have a very high opinion of Hoover anyway. He thought Hoover should be doing more to protect civil rights workers in the South. There's a whole lot of kind of backstory there, which we don't have time to get into all of it. But the point here is that King kind of acquiesced to the Kennedys, who were political allies, but didn't end up doing it. All right. I want to point out a few things at this stage of the story. Number one, Beverly Gage, in this kind of the biography now of Jagger Hoover, lays out, in my view, very persuasive evidence that Stanley Levison was indeed a clandestine member of the Communist Party, full stop. For a long time, other people who had looked at this had acknowledged that Levison at one point was a member of the Communist Party, but sort of treated this the way a lot of the red baiting of the era of the Second Red Scare, which was people who had, you know, in their youth maybe been communist in a different context but weren't anymore, were swept up by these paranoid demagogues, people like Senator Joe McCarthy. But in this particular case, the FBI knew what it was talking about. And in this respect, at this very early phase, I have to say, I'm not saying that it was okay to bug Martin Luther King, but there was certainly a legitimate national security concern that Levison could be influencing the most important civil rights leader in America on behalf of the Soviet Union. That's not crazy. That's not paranoia. That was a real concern. The FBI, in that respect, was simply following the facts. Number two, Bobby Kennedy approved the initial wiretaps of King's homes and offices. And I want to point this out that for the last 50 years, there is so much like Kennedy worship. And Bobby Kennedy, you know, has inspired generations of progressives because of his 1968 campaign. Of course, he was tragically gunned down by Sirhan Sirhan. All that's true. But Bobby Kennedy, for most of his career, was a reactionary. Okay, I just want to, he worked for Senator Joe McCarthy. He was one of the few people who actually attended his funeral in Wisconsin. And here he was as the attorney general just didn't care at all about the civil liberties of Americans who the Justice Department had in its crosshairs. Kennedy was obsessed with Jimmy Hoffa, the, the Teamster union leader who, you know, had unsavory connections, of course, with the mafia. But Kennedy didn't care. You know, he was pursuing a vendetta as the attorney general in that case. And in this case, it's not that he was manipulated by Jager Hoover. Bobby Kennedy approved the wiretapping of Martin Luther King. And I hate to say this because it makes me, I mean, I don't think that what happened to King is in any way defensible, but at the height of the Cold War, having Levison that close to King was a legitimate national security concern. All right, so those are the two things. If this was all there was to the story, it would be interesting, but it really wouldn't be that sinister. The problem is what Hoover and his deputies did with the information that they collected in their surveillance of King and his associates and how it influenced an operation that started as a way to almost protect the civil rights movement from the influence of this, you know, shady communist. And it ended up in a much worse situation, which we're now going to get into. And on this part of the story, you really can't blame the Kennedys. All right. And this really does get to some of the great flaws of Jager Hoover. Now, keep in mind, this is a guy who was born in 1895. He came of age at a time when most progressives, the people who were trying to kind of like, you know, fix society and, and, and make sure that cities were not run by, you know, 
corrupt hacks and introduce professional civil service exams and, you know, try to better the lives of poor people and get rid of tenements. These were the kind of, they were also, these people tended to be racist as well. You know, I recommend reading Jonah Goldberg's first book on liberal fascism to sort of get more examples of that. Okay, but that's the milieu of Jagger Hoover. And Hoover was not even a progressive. He, he wasn't necessarily always a reactionary. He's a more complicated figure. But that's the era that he was growing up. I'm not excusing his racism, but it's a fact. And Hoover belonged, for example, to a notoriously racist fraternity in college known as Kappa Alpha. They did things which I will not repeat that involved, you know, that were awful. And this was like, you know, very much part of the times, the 19-teens, 1920s, that period. And Hoover would often, you know, use that fraternity to recruit generations of FBI agents. All right. So when the FBI began to learn, not only that King had been lying to the Kennedys, but he was like a serious sexual, serial adulterer. I think something in Hoover snapped. He believed that Martin Luther King was a fraud, a hypocrite, someone who presented himself as a moral leader, but whose private life was steeped in sin. And it was one of these things that Hoover kind of became personally invested in. And he couldn't let it go. And, you know, and by the way, that was this thing about King. It's, it's true of a lot of people in this era. Just look at Kennedy and Johnson. The personal lives of a lot of the public figures, especially men, involved a lot of things that are unacceptable today in terms of treatment of women. And, you know, it's only until recently. I mean, you could say the Me Too movement really changed the culture. But if you go back to this period in time, we, we shouldn't be surprised that Martin Luther King, you know, was a womanizer. And we'll get to it. Maybe worse. Okay. So as Hoover and the FBI collected more evidence of Martin Luther King's sexual predilections and predations, the original mission, which was to learn the extent of Levinson's influence on King, gave way to a new mission, which was to destroy and expose King for the sexual deviant and liar that Hoover believed he was, and in the process, sabotage his movement. One example of the FBI's campaign was in November 1964. This is the scene. King has won the Nobel Peace Prize that year. He is going to accept the award in Oslo, Norway in December. And so in this month of November, Hoover invites the Women's Press Briefing Group, which is an offshoot of the, the White House Press Association, for a briefing in his personal offices. And he speaks about a number of issues, you know, for more than two hours. By the way, he's attacking the John Birch Society, he says you should have licenses for gun owners. It's all over the place. Then the subject of Martin Luther King comes up and Hoover says on the record over the objection of Deke DeLoach, who's one of his top deputies, that he considered Martin Luther King to be the most notorious liar in the country. That is a quote. It made huge headlines. King was shocked. He was in the Bahamas writing a speech for the Nobel Award Ceremony. A whole bunch of reporters come and ask him what he thinks of it. He gives a very diplomatic response saying Hoover must be under a lot of stress. But the two men really kind of hate each other at this point. And Hoover kind of won't back away. Eventually, by the way, this sort of post-text of this is a few months later, there is a summit that is arranged where King comes to Washington, meets with Hoover in his office, and then like addresses the press. And like the, in, in the meeting, Hoover has the chutzpah to say that the FBI can relate to the struggle of black people in America because like black people, the, you know, the, there's so much unfair press about the FBI when in fact we're so terrific. Hoover is clearly high on his own supply. I, I would love to have been a fly on the wall in that meeting. But King is doing his best to sort of publicly tamp down the pressure because even though Hoover is behind the scenes doing all this terrible stuff to King and his movement, there are other things the FBI in this period can do and end up doing that are good for the civil rights movement, which we'll get into in a little bit. All right. So Beverly Gage in her book, she does not speculate 
what was said off the record in this meeting. But others who've written about it say that in this meeting with the press, Hoover's also sharing some of the fruits of his surveillance of Martin Luther King. And you could say maybe he chose the women reporters because they would maybe be more sensitive to stories about a man who claims to be this moral role model and is constantly on the road having affairs with women that are not his wife. Okay, now, over the next few years, even though we don't know what Hoover had shared about King in that meeting with the reporters, what we do know is that the FBI develops a kind of a rap sheet, like an intel file on Martin Luther King that is fed by these buggings and surveillance and so forth. And they distribute it throughout the federal government right up until he's assassinated in 1968. And these are intelligence reports effectively on King's, you know, very personal private affairs with other women, as well as alleged ties to Levinson and, you know, the potential communist stuff. And that stuff is not just sent to the FBI. It's sent to the White House. It's sent to, you know, leaders in the military. It's like, you know, it's, it's very nasty stuff. So it ends up weirdly feeding this Washington rumor mill. So it's like whispered and kind of everybody knows it, but it's a different era. Because, you know, unlike, you know, I, I'm starting to think of the Steele dossier today, you know, how as soon as it becomes a story that the FBI briefs it to the outgoing and the incoming president, BuzzFeed says, all right, you know what, it shouldn't be a secret, let's print it, it goes on the internet and everybody's dealing with it. Different world in the 1960s in, in Washington, where it's in the rumor mill, but because, you know, this guy, Martin Luther King, by the way, Martin Luther King kind of is a hero, and he's about to win the Nobel Peace Prize. No one would run these stories about King's sex life even though Hoover was doing his best to get the press interested in it. So that's an interesting thing here, too, which is that he was feeding a rumor mill, but there was nobody who would be willing to touch it. Should be said, a lot of people knew about John F. Kennedy's extramarital affairs. Nobody really wrote about it. So, you know, this was sort of maybe par for the course of the time. The press would protect these figures. In this case, though, protecting King in some ways mitigated the abuses of power that the FBI was conducting at that time. Now, let's Call this what it is. It's the middle of the Cold War. And I would never say that the FBI should be equated with like the KGB in the Soviet Union or the East German Stasi. But let's make it clear what Hoover was doing to Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement is comparable. It is out of the playbook of these spy services of the communist regimes that he so despised. And it's clearly kind of a blind spot, I think, for him. All right. So there's no defending any of it. And yet at the same time, you got to delve a little bit deeper here because what the FBI actually found out about King, these bugs and wiretaps, was a little bit more than just simply that, you know, Martin Luther King liked the ladies. There's just, there's no easy way to say this, but we now know that certain summary reports from these surveillance operations are now, you know, declassified in, in you know, on the internet. And if they are true, again, a big if, and we have to say that Martin Luther King was more than just a bad husband. He was a sexual predator. He, he really kind of crossed the line. So in 2019, King's biographer, David Garrow, who is great and correctly reveres Martin Luther King. I want to make this very clear as I'm getting into this. Martin Luther King is a hero. Okay. Anyway, he wrote about some of these surveillance summaries in the British magazine standpoint. And one of them describes an evening at the Willard Hotel in Washington in 1965, where another pastor allegedly raped a woman in front of a group, and King was there. And the quote from the report is that King looked on, laughed, and offered advice while this woman was being raped at the Willard Hotel. A gauge in her biography, I should say, notes that this still remains an allegation because it's just a summary of the surveillance. 
but it may be confirmed by the release of the audio recordings that the FBI made that are set to be released in 2027. So everybody should be prepared in the next, in five years or so. We, we may know more than just it's, this is what was in the summary, but it's not looking good. So when the surveillance of this evening at the Willard was written up, the supervisory agent suggested that the FBI hold on to it and not release it. Hoover himself, though, disagreed, according to Gage, and overruled him and ordered that a summary of the Willard incident be sent to Lyndon Johnson aide Walter Jenkins. So Hoover wanted this stuff to be out there. It's, just remember, I think it's, it's one thing to collect the information. It's another thing to selectively disclose it. Anyway, here is Mr. Garrow in that Standpoint article. He writes, quote, King's far from monogamous lifestyle, like his binge drinking, may fit, albeit uncomfortably, within his existing life story. But the suggestion, actually more than one, that he either actively tolerated or personally employed violence against any woman, even while drunk, poses so fundamental a challenge to his historical stature as to require the most complete and extensive historical review possible, end of quote. For what it's worth, in my view, even if this allegation is true, and I think it might very well be, I don't think it takes away from King's legacy as a great moral leader, and I also don't think it excuses Hoover's sabotage and surveillance of the civil rights movement. Rather, it's a reminder of what might be a corollary to the rule of separating the art from the artist. We must also separate the person from the prophet. We are all cracked vessels. It reminds me of the story of King David's adulterous affair with Bathsheba and how he sent her husband Uriah off to die in a battle after learning that Bathsheba was pregnant and that, of course, that baby was stillborn as a kind of punishment from God for David's flaws. A more contemporary example might be the story revealed 10 years ago in Mimi Alfred's memoir, where she says that she was instructed as a 19-year-old by John F. Kennedy to fillet one of his senior aides in the White House swimming pool as the president watched. Great leaders often have great flaws. The inverse, in a way, is also true. Great villains can also have great qualities. And Hoover is one of the villains, particularly of the 1960s. But we should also remember that this is a man that saved the FBI when he became director in 1924 from endemic corruption at the young age of 29. He kind of rebuilt it when President Franklin Roosevelt's administration debated the internment of Japanese Americans in World War II. Hoover was one of the few dissenting voices that argued that such an order would be unconstitutional to his credit. Also, Hoover's hardball tactics and Machiavellian political cunning helped to sideline not only a demagogue Joe McCarthy, but also the John Birch Society, to his credit. And you can find more things that Hoover did that were praiseworthy, in addition to a lot of the bad stuff that we've been going over in this episode. Okay, so one final word about COINTELPRO, and this also complicates things. Because COINTELPRO today is understood largely because it targeted a great man like Martin Luther King, it targeted the Black Panthers, and it's something that the left knows a lot about, but the right, you know, doesn't pay as much attention to. But never forget, there was a COINTEL program that also helped to destroy some of the most loathsome people of the 20th century, and that was the Ku Klux Klan, known as COINTELPRO White Hate. The same tactics deployed against the communists and the civil rights leaders were also used to destroy these hooded racists that terrorized blacks for, in the South for a century after the Civil War. Here is a clip from Lyndon Johnson, flanked by Hoover, announcing the arrest of four Klansmen in the murder of a civil rights worker in Alabama in 1965. Arrests were made a few minutes ago 
of four Ku Klux Klan members in Birmingham, Alabama, charging them with conspiracy to violate the civil rights of the murdered woman. Mr. J. Edgar Hoover, our honored public servant who is standing here by me, has advised that the identities of the men charged with this heinous crime are as follows. Eugene Thomas, age 43, of Bessemer. William Orville Eaton, age 41, also of Bessemer. Gary Thomas Rowe, age 31, of Birmingham. And Collie Leroy Wilkins, Jr., age 21, of Fairfield, Alabama. Mrs. Leosa went to Alabama to serve the struggles for justice. She was murdered by the enemies of justice, who for decades have used the rope and the gun and the tar and the feathers to terrorize their neighbors. They struck by night, as they generally do. For their purpose cannot stand the light of day. Now, what's interesting here is that one of those arrested, Gary Rowe, was the FBI's best informant in these years in the Ku Klux Klan. As Gage writes in her biography, Roe remembered the FBI encouraging him to, quote, screw as many wives as you can, plan as much hate and dissent in the goddamn families as you can, do anything you can to discredit the Klan. No holds barred. And the Bureau itself played lots of dirty tricks on many of the Klan chapters. Everything from meeting in public places to interview Klan leaders in a subtle way, to make it seem like maybe this guy was cooperating with the feds, to sending out literature on Klan stationery to discredit the organization. One trick, the Bureau learned that a local Klan leader had kept his identity in the organization a secret, so they deliberately mailed letters addressed to him on Klan stationery to his neighbors. Another trick involved the mock-up of a KKK coloring book with a Klan leader saying, color me fed. The idea here was to kind of wage this psychological war on this organization and to play up into their paranoia, to make them think that around every corner there was an informant and a spy. And it's nasty stuff. And we associate it, these tactics, with, as I said before, the Stasi, the KGB. More recently, we associate it with like Bashar al-Assad's regime or the Iranian MOIS. This is what authoritarians and totalitarians tend to do to their own citizens. And it's what the FBI was doing both to the left and the right in the 1960s. And I should add also the 70s, but that's another another episode. Anyway, for me, it poses a fascinating question because no one serious would argue that the FBI sabotage and psychological warfare against the Klan was right. I mean, of course it was righteous. It was the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, this is an organization that operated with impunity in the South until the 1960s. So you needed some federal intervention to end this foul order of Jim Crow and segregation. Okay. But, you know, you can make a similar argument about the American communists, too, which were the first card targets of COINTELPRO. And once you start making these kinds of exceptions that it's okay to violate the privacy rights and the civil rights of some Americans in the name of a greater cause, you sort of open the door to the, like, unfathomable and hideous abuses that we've been talking about so far in this monologue regarding the civil rights movement. So it's a trickier question than one might think. You make an exception for the groups that in the moment you're like, yeah, we all agree. Let's screw up the Klan. Let's, let's, let's wage psychological warfare on the Klan. Great. But how do you do that without empowering an agency to do it against people who did not deserve that at all and shouldn't? And that's why it's important that if you have something important like constitutional protections of one's rights of privacy, then that applies to even the most loathsome of American citizens.
And I thought that in this respect, when we're getting back to Hoover, the OG man himself, this was one of the, the great revelations in Gage's biography, which I, again, recommend everybody go out and buy. It's a great book. She writes, after almost 20 years of being immersed in Southern racial conflicts, he, meaning Hoover, had come to view civil rights activists and Klansmen as part of the same debilitating turn toward lawbreaking and disorder. The fact that one group used torture, intimidation, and murder as its methods, while the other practiced nonviolence, was almost incidental to him. Both groups, in his view, broke the law and assaulted the status quo, and both created unwelcome problems for federal officials, from the FBI on up to the present, by promoting conflict and instability, end of quote. In my view, that is the most damning assessment of Hoover and his legacy. Here's a man who spent his adult life projecting this image as an incorruptible paragon of virtue. And yet, J. Edgar Hoover lacked the moral intelligence to distinguish between Martin Luther King and the Ku Klux Klan. Later in the evening when arrangements are made I'll be at the keyhole outside your bedroom door Well, today at The Reeducation, we are incredibly fortunate to have Dr. Beverly Gage, who is an historian at Yale University and who has just published what I think will be the definitive final word biography on one J. Edgar Hoover. Dr. Gage, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I like have a lot of questions, but I want to start off by asking you, maybe let's start from the end of J. Edgar Hoover's life, and that is he has two sets of important files. One of them are considered personal files. The other, I guess, are very national security sensitive files. Some of them go to one of his protégés, Mark Felt, who is effectively the deputy. Others are burned by his longtime secretary, Helen Gandy. And you mentioned this at the very end of the book. What are the significance of those files that we will never see? That's what I want to, that's my first question. And what were they? How would you describe what they really were? Right. It's a great question. Hoover died in May of 1972. And at that point, he had been head of the FBI for 48 years, which is kind yes. of an incredible run. You know, and the book mm -hmm. goes through, through, through all of that. But this moment at the end of his life, when he died quite suddenly and unexpectedly at the age of 77, so not that unexpectedly, 
One of the first questions for everyone in Washington at the FBI and outside of the FBI, and certainly in the Nixon administration, was what happens to Hoover's secret files? There had been lots of legend and rumors about his secret files for decades at that point. And there were, in the end, two collections of files, as you suggest. One were his personal file. One was the official and confidential file. And the claim at the FBI was that Hoover's personal file was really legitimately personal information, you know, exchanges of letters with many prominent people that he kept to himself and that he asked to have destroyed by his secretary, Helen Gandy, at the end of his life. And so those were destroyed. However, there are some hints from congressional investigations and from Hoover's attempt to go through some of these files, Mm. a very sort of half-hearted attempt to go through some of those files and begin cataloging and categorizing them in the in the mo- months and years before his death. They didn't get very far, but they did find some material in there that was obviously of official significance. So we don't really know what was in those personal files. And I think the most likely scenario is that there was quite a lot of semi-official and official material that Hoover might not have wanted revealed, but that there was also quite a lot of personal material because he was pretty secretive about his personal life and about his interpersonal relationships. And so it doesn't take any big leap of the imagination to think he might have wanted to get rid of that material as well. Okay. And now, now on the confidential files, they do exist. Have you seen them? Yeah, so those exist, and they have been produced in a number of different forms. You can get them in book form. They're up online at the FBI. Interestingly, the National Archives also reprocessed the official and confidential file. So the original versions of it are sitting in College Park, Maryland at National Archives, too. And though we had known the contents of this, and it's a pretty haphazard bunch of materials, some of them pertain to the most controversial moments of Hoover's career, his surveillance of Martin Luther King, for instance, lots of stuff about important politicians. And then some of it is really kind of random stuff that Mm -hmm. you don't know exactly why it's in there. It was clearly important to someone at some point, but they're not, you know, things that would be household names. But what is interesting is that the reprocessed files at the National Archives did, in fact, turn up some new material. For instance, it was there that I came across the first unredacted version of the very famous anonymous. I remember when you I remember when you came up with that. Yeah. yeah, And so that was just simply because they had they had reprocessed the file. Let's slow down a little bit. Just explain, maybe like set the background. This is a poison pen letter, probably written by William Sullivan. Correct. Um, who was the longtime director of intelligence, another Hoover protege who fell out of with him at the very end, that basically is the letter that tells Martin Luther King anonymously, we have all this information on you, you ought to kill yourself, right? Right. This is one of the most famous kind of FBI counterintelligence dirty tricks of Hoover's career. It wasn't known during his lifetime, but was exposed in the 1970s after he died So this was late 1964, and the FBI, in particular, the figure that you named, William Sullivan, who was the head of domestic intelligence for the FBI, made a fake letter 
for Martin Luther King purporting to be from a disillusioned Black admirer. And they sent that to him along with some tapes that they had garnered from bugs in his hotel rooms showing, capturing some of his extramarital sexual activity. And they sent all of that to King. And it's a really aggressive, outrageous letter that says, you know, King, I once had faith in you, but now you've been exposed as, you know, an immoral beast. And it ends with this, this famous claim that King, you know what you ought to do, you have 30 days to do it or thereabouts, which King interpreted as the FBI really trying to pressure him into committing suicide. Unbelievable. Now, I want to get back to that, the files, and I want to go back into the, to, to, to King and Pro. But on these files, is it fair to say that they were, was this a blackmail archive? I mean, was this basically the dirt that Hoover had collected over a career in Washington against his political friends and enemies? Is that what this was? I would say yes and no. So there's a lot of dirt in these files, for sure. Some of it pertaining to people's sexual secrets, some of it directly related to some of the most important and significant figures in American political life, presidents, senators, congressmen, attorneys general, and on down the line. So that's absolutely true. The question of blackmail is interesting. So Hoover is, of course, famous as an arm twister and a blackmailer. And there is some truth to that. So people knew that he had information or could have information about them. So that knowledge alone made him incredibly powerful in Washington. And in some ways, it's better when people don't know exactly what you have because they will behave as if you might have all of their secrets, whether whether they do or not. Hoover's manner of blackmail, per se, was often quite interesting in which either he himself or more often an agent or a top deputy would go to the figure in question and say, Mr. Senator, we want you to know that this (laughs) terrible information has come our way and we are here to assure you that it is safe with the FBI. (laughs) And so it was a combination of what I actually think they often did think was their legitimate purpose, particularly with presidents, which was protecting the president. But that information and then giving that person the knowledge that you have it, of course, also gives you lots and lots of power. But the other interesting material that is in the official and confidential files, as well as elsewhere in the FBI's files, are also evidence of lots of the favors that Hoover was doing for various political figures. Like this is about Trujillo, right? This is like the really conservative Democratic senators who supported everything that Hoover wanted in terms of like, you know, abrogating civil liberties and giving the FBI more powers. He protected them when there was a real chance that they would be exposed in the Dominican Republic where they would go on. I mean, how would you describe it? I guess these kind of pleasure trips or something where they would find a mansion and there would be prostitutes and they could do whatever they wanted. Right. There are all (laughs) sorts of examples in Latin America, in the Caribbean, in Washington itself, sort of little pleasure palaces. So there were certainly those kinds of stories. But, you know, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, they were often asking Hoover to do what were pretty outrageous political favors. And Hoover did it sometimes. Other times he didn't. 
But for instance, Nixon and Kissinger asked the FBI to wiretap members of the White House staff in an effort to, at, at least in theory, to find leaks. Lyndon Johnson asked the FBI to conduct undercover surveillance at the 1964 the Democratic Convention Freedom Party. Right. of I'm... the Mississippi Freedom Party, of yeah. civil rights activists. And so that is material that's also in the official and confidential files. You know, and that's less Hoover being the arm twister than Hoover having his arm twisted. Okay. And in, in the case of Nixon, though, and the White House staff, didn't Hoover say, I'm sorry, I can't do that. And then that's how we got the famous plumbers who were the retired guys who ended up breaking and doing the Watergate break in him. So in some ways, it was like Hoover standing up to Nixon that led Nixon to seek those powers elsewhere, right? Correct. Yeah. So very early on in 1969, Hoover cooperates with Nixon and with Kissinger, do these wiretaps, even though he tells them that he thinks it's totally combustible. Right. And if they get caught, they're in big trouble. And he's very concerned about it, secretive about it, but he does it for Nixon. But as time goes on by 1970, when Nixon is pushing the FBI to particularly conduct really aggressive surveillance of Daniel Ellsberg, to, you know, perform kind of dirty tricks and break-ins. Hoover does say no to a lot of that. And that's why Nixon decides that he needs the plumbers. He needs his own dirty trick squad, which included several former FBI agents right. um, to, to do the White House bidding because Hoover wouldn't always do it. So I want to get to something and I want to sort of just focus now a little bit on COINTELPRO, which is counterintelligence programs. What's the origin of COINTELPRO? Because I guess you could, some would argue that this really starts with, you know, the broader Cold War on communism at home. And then after a series, like the beginnings of, I guess, some Supreme Court decisions, Hoover's trying to figure out a way to keep this domestic intelligence capability and going without, you know, running afoul of the Supreme Court and the Eisenhower administration. Is that right? That's absolutely right. So COINTELPRO, I think, Today, we mostly know as a kind of disruptive and surveillance campaign aimed at groups like the Black Panthers, the New Left in the late 1960s, but it has its origins as a formal program in the 1950s and in the late 1950s when Hoover had been a really big figure in the Red Scare, in the anti-communist well, Both surge. Red Scares. The, the, the first both one and the second right. one. <laughs> that's right. It is his lifetime cause, really, <laughs> the cause of anti-communism. But by the late 50s, he's becoming very concerned that a lot of the things that the FBI was had been doing, bringing court cases, using certain forms of surveillance, were now getting a lot of pushback, both from the public and particularly from the Supreme Court. So he's worried that the public is becoming apathetic on the question of communism. He himself is not at all apathetic on the question of communism. He writes um, that book. So, he writes the book, The, the Master of Deception in, this, in 57, I think, right? Exactly. Master of Deceit. Masters of Deceit. And COINTELPRO happens at the same time. And originally, it is a secret program that's specifically aimed at the Communist Party. And it's a program that is intended to try to kind of destroy the party from within without needing to take people to court, without needing to do a lot of this publicly. And so COINTELPRO stands for Counterintelligence Program. 
and counterintelligence tactics were basically these secret disruptive tactics, everything from sending anonymous letters to the leaders of the organization, trying to send in informants who are going to sow internal dissent. I mean, a lot of the FBI's tactics on the counterintelligence front are actually pretty funny for anyone who's ever been involved in social movement organizing or anything of that sort, because a lot of what they do is send their informants in and say, we have a great plan. Make the meetings really, really long and boring. Ask irrelevant questions. You know, Try to get people arguing with each other, and that's going to kill the organization. So it's everything from that to planting newspaper stories, you know, exposing people's sexual peccadilloes, revealing things that were true or not true about the private lives of leaders. So there's a whole range of tactics that end up being deployed against a pretty wide range of groups, but that start out really aimed at the Communist Party. Now, one of those groups that eventually gets into Cointelpro through something known as white hate is the Ku Klux Klan. So let's just briefly, like, maybe talk about that. I mean, there was there was a successful, I mean, I, it's counterintelligence, but that seems to, that, that often makes it seem like it's just simply wiretaps or, it's much more. It's really like almost like a kind of, you must call it political warfare. But there was a campaign in the 60s, maybe talk about that, because at first, Jagger Hoover, who you, I think, demonstrate in the book, is a racist his entire life, but he also you know, at the urging of Lyndon Baines Johnson, I guess, is, you know, he he says, okay, we're going to we're going to bring in the FBI to try to destroy the Klan. I think this is one of the least well-known parts of COINTELPRO, which for good reason, we mostly associate with being aimed at organizations on the left, from the Communist Party to the anti-war movement, the Black Panthers, and on and on. But there is one program within the COINTELPRO universe called COINTELPRO White Hate that, beginning in 1964, is explicitly aimed at white supremacist vigilante and neo-Nazi organizations, of which the Klan was the most prominent. And there are a couple of things that are really interesting about it. One is that it's the same tactics, right? All of the things that they had just been doing to the Communist Party, things that they are doing to Martin Luther King in this exact same moment, they are also doing to the Klan. So planting scurrilous newspaper articles, you know, scheduling fake Klan meetings, trying to humiliate and embarrass them, trying to spread rumors about which Klansman is sleeping with which other Klansman's girlfriend, a whole range of, as you say, kind of political warfare, disruptive tactics that do real damage to the Klan and to other kind of right-wing white supremacist and neo-Nazi groups during this period. And so there's this story about the continuity of tactics that's really interesting. And then, as you say, there's a story about Hoover himself, who from a very early age was sort of steeped in certain kinds of white supremacist traditions, has a long history of racism at the FBI, but who was also a federal lawman and did not like groups like the Ku Klux Klan, who he thought were vigilantes, were lawless, defied federal law, defied the federal government, challenged the authority of the FBI. And so At this moment, as in other moments in his career, he is, in fact, willing to go after those groups as well. Okay, I want to ask now something that has been very confusing to me as I've tried to 
read about the FBI and particularly Hoover's legacy. He says, I guess at the end of 1966, we are ending what is known as black bag jobs, where you would have teams of FBI agents breaking into some target's home and setting up bugs or reading through their mail or doing all kinds of stuff. And yet we know that the FBI kept doing that for almost the next 10 years. And we know this because later on, you know, one of his protégés, Mark Felt, is tried along with other senior FBI leaders for doing all this kind of stuff against not only the weather underground, but people who knew the weather underground, like their friends and neighbors. So what happened there? Why did Hoover make it a show to say we're not doing these kinds of tactics anymore? And then did he know that he was lying? Was or did people do this without his authority? I mean, what can you kind of explain all that? Yeah, it is one of the strangest moments and most counterintuitive moments. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah, but the, your book is filled with these wonderful counterintuitive moments of things that, you know, like like the white hate, you know, and here's a guy I mean, you 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 build. I mean, it's just undebatable evidence that from a very early age when he's in college, he joins this fraternity that is like really into segregation and the lost cause of the South. He's a racist. And yet, you know, he's responsible for the infiltration of, you know, the Klan and the neo-Nazis. So anyway, as you were saying. Right. So I'm glad that comes through in the book because I do try to find these both deepen some of the aspects that we already know about Hoover, such as his racism and give us a real understanding of where that came from but also find these moments that run a little counter to the stereotype of Hoover. And I think he often is depicted as a pretty one-dimensional villain. And he's a more complicated character than that, though I have no interest in redeeming J. Edgar <laughs> Hoover. That's certainly not my purpose in the world. But this moment in 1966 is one of these really counterintuitive episodes um, in which Hoover says to his agents that we are going to stop using a lot of the controversial tactics, sometimes as they openly acknowledge, illegal tactics that we have been using up to this point. To some degree, he's talking about wiretapping and bugs, but in particular, he's very concerned about what the FBI calls black bag jobs, which are breaking and entering, warrantless breaking and entering, either to collect intelligence evidence, so to say, get the membership list of the Communist Party, or in some cases to plant bugs, because the only way you can actually plant a bug <laughs> is mm -hmm. to go inside the facility. And the FBI often did this without any warrants and often without the knowledge of even the attorney general. So in 1966, Hoover starts issuing these memos saying, we're not going to do this stuff anymore. And it's a little hard to make sense of that moment. I think on the one hand, he's quite sincere in doing this. He, throughout his career, has a surprisingly good read on what the public's going to tolerate, what seems popular. You know, he couldn't have survived in office as long as he did if he didn't have a good political antenna. And he is reading the winds of the 1960s. He's seeing that in Congress, in the public at large, things that would have been tolerated a decade earlier were no longer acceptable. There's a new civil liberties consciousness coming into the fore, and he doesn't want to get caught doing some of the things that he's been doing. So that I think is true and real, and there are real restrictions and real reductions in both wiretaps and bag jobs. It seems clear that that really does happen in the late 1960s. But it doesn't happen universally, and I think there are a couple of things that go on. So one, his restrictions are 
a, a statement that he wants to be the one controlling this and making decisions. So it's like, don't go out and do this without checking in with headquarters. So he does approve some pieces of what he says, you know, these restrictions are intended to prevent. Two, I think a lot of mid-level officials at that point think this is a terrible policy. They think Hoover's getting old and senile and isn't nearly aggressive enough, particularly against the new left. And so they act in a relatively rogue capacity and hope that they don't get caught. And the field offices had quite a lot of potential to do that without the knowledge of headquarters, though they weren't supposed to be doing that. So that probably happened on occasion. And then a lot of the escalation actually occurs after Hoover's death. Uh So a lot of that weather underground stuff that felt is ultimately prosecuted for actually happens in the immediate aftermath of Hoover's death. Not all of it, but there's clearly an escalation at that point. So you think that Hoover was sincere in trying to end the practice and get the FBI closer in tune with where the country was in terms of civil liberties. I think he didn't have any principled commitment to that. But he felt as a matter of survival. He was a pretty good strategist, and he was always very, very concerned about anything that was going to bring the FBI under criticism. There were congressional investigations into wiretapping, picking up at that point. So he was, I think, trying to be very careful and trying to kind of stay within the bounds of what Congress and the public would, would tolerate if these things ever came out. Well, as a, as, a, as a historian, I'm sure you appreciate how there are sometimes patterns. And Hoover played a major role in the Palmer raids, which was the first Red Scare. They were horrendous violations of civil liberties. And there was a backlash in the 1920s to the excesses that Hoover was instrumental in, even though he would spend most of his career pretending he didn't have anything to do with it. Was that maybe in the back of his head? He's sort of, I've seen this before. You know, everybody was, you know, when when their anarchists were bombing Wall Street, we all wanted to do whatever we could to get them. But then the American people were like, wait a second, what is the FBI doing? They're rounding up all these people who might be innocent and everything like that. Yeah, this is the moment where I first got to know J. Edgar Right, it was your first book, right. As a young man in my first book, which is a book called The Day Wall Street Exploded, which is about politics of radical terrorism and then the federal response to it in that first Red Scare, so the period in the early 20th century, and particularly 1919 and 1920. And Hoover was there as a very young man. He got promoted up the ranks pretty quickly. And so at the age of 24, he became the head of this new experiment in the Justice Department called the Radical Division. And the Radical Division had basically two purposes. One was conduct widespread peacetime surveillance of mainly left-wing groups. This is right after the Bolshevik Revolution. There's a lot of concern about revolutionary violence and revolutionary movements in the United States. And then two was to help plan the Palmer Raids, which were a series of deportation raids, as you said, aimed at anarchists and communists in particular. And so at a very early age, he's learning to do all of this he really orchestrates the Palmer raids behind the scenes. And then there's a huge backlash from this new constellation of civil liberties groups that 
like these federal experiments have just come into being. The most famous of them is the ACLU. There's a big backlash. It seems for a while like his career is going to end before it's even gotten started in his mid-20s. But he manages to survive that and really takes out of that a sensitivity to and a caution about certainly the public display right. of civil liberties violations. And, you know, so he he partly responds to those in good ways. And then he also thinks, well, if we're going to do these things, we got to do them a lot more secretly than we did during the Palmer years. I mean, and just in that period, he develops, I mean, I guess you could say a kind of hatred of Felix Frankfurter, who goes on eventually to become a Supreme Court justice. And that's where you begin to sort of see there's something that's off in the way he envisions the do you think there's an issue with with Hoover where he can't distinguish between somebody who is kind of a professional adversary must does he think that those people in his life that he encounters are actually like incorrigible threats to the nation? You follow what I'm saying, which is to say that there's it seems like in Hoover's thinking it's that that sometimes he he thinks of he he can't distinguish between this is somebody who disagrees with me on the constitutionality of what I just did versus this is an enemy of the republic. Is that right or am I overstating? That's absolutely right. And I would even take it a step further and say he couldn't distinguish between, you know, someone with whom I disagree on, say, the best way to contain the threat of communism. But he also couldn't distinguish between anyone who criticized the FBI pretty quickly also became an enemy (laughs) of the republic. He saw very little differentiation between his own political interests, the interests of the institution and the interests of the nation as a whole. And so vast swaths of the intellectual class, certainly absolutely of the left, you know, become for him not just people with whom he disagrees, but people who are actively seeking to undermine the American way of life as manifested in the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the personage of J. Edgar Hoover Well, that's terrifying that this is somebody who for 48 years was one of the most powerful people in the country and had almost a kind of psychological disorder that couldn't distinguish between reasonable disagreement and treason. Yeah, I think that... How did we survive? (laughs) Well, so to be fair to poor Edgar, while I think all of that is true, you know, he also was actually very good at building political relationships in Washington and getting along with a surprisingly broad group of political figures. And, you know, part of his story is not only that he was this kind of rogue arm twister with a personality disorder, I wouldn't actually, you know, characterize it quite that way, but if we want to go with that, but he also was someone who had incredibly widespread political support really across the political spectrum from Republicans, from Democrats. You know, he served under four Democratic presidents, four Republican presidents. He had widespread support in Congress. Vast swaths of the American public supported him for almost all of his career. So he's an incredibly popular figure. He got approval ratings in the 70s, 80s, 90 percentile. and he had a, you know, an ability to, even in certain strategic moments, make working alliances with groups like the ACLU and right. like the NAACP. Well, did he, he's did conducting he surveillance did, of them, but he he's also them? getting along with them. I think so. This uh, is through the but, this is part of this is through the letter writing 
program he had in the crime records division, right? Correct. And where he would have are... these correspondence. People would write letters for him and they would he would make people feel like they were in the Hoover inner circle, right? Right. And he also just built working relationships. I mean, his most liberal period and the period when he's most part of something we might recognize as the liberal establishment is really during the 1940s and during the war. And around the anti-communist question, there were all sorts of people who we would think of as being, you know, kind of on the liberal side of things who are very willing to and quite actively interested in cooperating with the FBI, particularly around those sorts of issues. And, you know, I think Hoover himself could, in certain cases, go ahead and move forward with those coalitions and then break them and right. often be doing the same thing at the same time. So Roger Baldwin, the head of the ACLU, he has both got Roger Baldwin on the list of people who ought to be detained in internment camps if the United States goes to war with the Soviet Union and also having a kind of friendly correspondence with him and, uh, helping the ACLU along in its uh, own efforts to figure out what to do about communism. I mean, and Max Ernst, who was one of the founders of the ACLU, right, was wrote this famous embarrassing piece for Reader's Digest in like 1951 that said, I used to worry about the FBI, but they're great on civil liberties and they're and clearly he was playing them. I mean, Hoover was savvy in that way. And he he made people feel like they were, you know, insiders when he was keeping them at arm's length and a remarkable. I want to ask on this, since we're talking about communism and Hoover, is, is, is can we say, I mean, was Hoover effective against the threat of communism or I mean, at the same time, he could be effective and also incredibly paranoid. He could be effective and destructive. But how would you characterize it? Because if you compare him to say James Jesus Angleton and the CIA, he has a much better track record of not only getting at least he has that one agent in the common turn in the mid you know, but, you know, he 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 was far more effective in some ways than the CIA. And when he was gone, the FBI had a lot of problems with infiltration from the Russians. So. Yeah. So anti-communism is the cause of Hoover's life. I mean, it right. is the issue around which almost all other things circulate. Anti-crime, law and order stuff as well. But I think for Hoover, the communist question was the question of the 20th right. century and was really his purpose, early age and later. And, you know, I think the interesting thing about him is that he sees the communist question operating on all sorts of different levels. In some of them, he's much more rational and effective than in others. So there's the very particular question of espionage, right? Which right. was a real thing that was happening sure, in, the, sure. in the 40s and 50s. You know, you didn't have to be paranoid to think that Soviet espionage was occurring, that it was probably something the United States wanted to do something to contain, and that it was occurring in a number of different ways, and that the Communist Party itself was sometimes and not always a vehicle for certain forms of Soviet espionage. And, you know, on that, the FBI had some real successes and it had some real failures. Two of the more successful programs that I talk about in the book 
are one, the Venona program, which right. started out as an army decryption program. And the army finds out as they start to decode Soviet cables in the 1940s that a lot of these have to do with intelligence, espionage, infiltration. So they reach out to the FBI. And in the late 40s and early 50s, they collaborate on this program, which does, in fact, lead the FBI to a lot of people who it was did not have on its radar, like Julius Rosenberg. That's really the, and the Carl thing Fuchs, that pushes. Right? And Klaus Fuchs, so Klaus, exactly. Klaus Fuchs, my bad. <laughs> In other cases, because they want to keep this program super secret, they find people who are involved, even in atomic espionage, and they can't do anything about it. <laughs> and so those people just go on and live their lives, and they're never prosecuted. And, and Venona itself ended up sort of infiltrated by famous spies like Kim Philby, and so who was a, a British intelligence officer who was also a Soviet agent, and so is less effective in the end than they might have hoped, but still is a pretty big triumph. And, and also the, one, the American Communist Party, he had wired from the get-go, right? Right. And so you get these kind of specific espionage investigations. Then you have a broader series of campaigns against the Communist Party itself, infiltration, wiretapping. The FBI and the Justice Department use a law called the Smith Act to prosecute the leadership of the Communist Party in the 1940s and 50s. And there, I think there are a lot more questions about what the FBI was doing, because the Smith Act, these are essentially speech crimes that Hoover doesn't like what the Communist Party is saying. And he uses laws that are really supposed to be aimed at the advocacy of violent revolution to go after people who are clearly, I mean, maybe someday in a fantasy land planning a violent okay. revolution, but like not stockpiling arms and attempting to right. you know, commit insurrection against the United States, but are, you know, advocating pretty radical ideas, are sometimes in relationship with the Soviet Union in an intimate way. So there you have something I think that's a little more questionable. And then he also had these big cultural campaigns against communism in which he is making speeches and having his staff write articles and books in the end that are about you know communism as a cultural and ideological threat to everything in the United States from you know the family to the community to law and order to religion and there, I think it's a very truthful depiction of his own worldview. But then you're getting pretty broad and like, what is the head of a federal law enforcement agency doing right. standing out there telling everyone to go to Sunday school, <laughs> which was one of his big things. Right. OK, so that, that's, that's a great answer. I want to on these lines on Hoover and, and communism. You I mean, this is a maybe just talk a little bit about how he was very clever when it came to Senator Joe McCarthy, because McCarthy, we, we call it McCarthyism for a reason. He was, you know, completely vile and irresponsible. He oft, he he did not know what he was talking about. And he would accuse like the army and the State Department of having all these agents. There were agents, but it was like not as many as what McCarthy was saying. And Hoover kind of played him, right? Like on the one hand, he convinced McCarthy that he was his guy. And then on the other hand, he, he totally undermined him. And maybe talk a little bit about that. My claim in the book is that Hoover is is the more important anti-communist figure. He's there before oh. McCarthy. He's there 
long after McCarthy is gone. And he's a real institution builder in a way that McCarthy wasn't. So McCarthy kind of comes on, you know, he's elected, he goes to Congress in 1947. And then he has his big kind of public moment early in 1950, where he becomes this flashpoint for a certain kind of very aggressive, big lie, anti-communist style. And so at the time, McCarthyism, I think today we think of as being sort of the same thing as anti-communism. No. But in 1950, everyone was pretty much an (laughs) anti-communist, right? I mean, there's small pockets of people who were not. But what distinguished McCarthy was really his political style, these brash accusations, often false accusations, kind of stirring up in a very demagogic way, a kind of very reactionary and emotionally laden and not always truthful uh, approach to this question. And so Hoover originally kind of saw him as an ally, and McCarthy wanted nothing more than to have all of the authority of J. Edgar Hoover and the, you know, the amazing material that's in FBI files on his side. And so the FBI does cooperate with him at certain moments. And Hoover and McCarthy are pretty good social friends. They kind of move in the same circles, sort of strange circles of of right-wing anti-communists. On the other hand, Hoover also thinks McCarthy is just a loose cannon and a threat to the anti-communist cause and to the FBI, because McCarthy's going around saying things like, I got all this information from right, FBI which would... <laughs> files, and J. Edgar Hoover will back me up. And Hoover's like, you did not. You absolutely didn't. Right? And so they have a very funny relationship. But in the end, Hoover's political radar and his desire to stay in good graces of the Eisenhower administration means that he really turns on McCarthy and becomes one of the people that helps to contain him and bring him down, largely by not supporting McCarthy's claims that, you know, he has authority from the FBI. Yes. Exactly. Okay. Now we got to get to the personal life, which is, I mean, for those of us who've been reading on Hoover, the modern biographies really debunk some of the Oliver Stone version of this. But let's just start. This is his personal life. Who is Clyde Tolson and why is he so important to understanding J. Edgar Hoover? Clyde Tolson is, without question, the most important relationship in Hoover's life, and that is on a professional level as well as on a personal level. So Tolson came to the FBI in 1928 as a young man who had been working in and around D.C. for about a decade at that point. Like many early FBI officials, he went to George Washington University, which was Hoover's alma mater. And Washington's a pretty small town at this point. GW is producing a lot of people who are moving into the middle ranks of the federal government. That's a lot of what its purpose is during that moment. And Clyde Tolson is one of these figures, but he's one of many um, in this early moment. But very quickly, he and Hoover develop a, a very close personal relationship and Hoover promotes Tolson up through the ranks so that Tolson spends most of his career at the FBI as Hoover's number two man and sort of Hoover's internal enforcer more than anything. He's the administrative guy. He's not an investigator, but he is the person who's charge of kind of making sure that Hoover's very particular vision of the FBI is being 
presented to the world and is being enforced internally. So that's their professional relationship. But their relationship goes much, much beyond that, which is to say that they basically operated like a social couple. They moved in the social world together. People recognized them really as a couple. They loved each other. There are kind of deep expressions of affection. It's very hard to say exactly what was going on in the bedroom. They didn't live together, but they traveled together. They went to work together every day. They had all of their meals together. And they moved through nightclubs, parties, all sorts of social gatherings as a couple. So for instance, Dick and Pat Nixon often you know, had couples outings with Edgar and Clyde. <laughs> and when you look at Hoover's correspondence with his friends, you know, it's very spousal. And people are often saying, oh, give my best to Clyde. He made the best martinis the other night mm -hmm. when we all got together. And so I think the interesting thing about their relationship, neither one of them dated women. Hoover certainly didn't. There's some evidence Tolson maybe had a few slightly more serious relationships, but I think we can only understand them as, as gay men. In okay. So you, to so your, your conclusion is that they were gay, but you, do you have evidence that they had a sexual relationship or? Well, right. And then the question is, what does that mean? So right. okay. they themselves would never have described themselves that way. And in fact, in the 40s and 50s, when the Lavender Scare, which is the purge of homosexuals yeah. from the federal government, begins, Hoover is in charge of enforcing and investigating a lot of that. And he sends his agents out anytime anyone suggests, hey, you know, we've heard these rumors about the director of the FBI. He actually sent FBI agents out to say, Hello, ma'am. We hear that when you were sitting that's in right. the you know, beauty parlor, you mentioned this. Well, we just want you to know that that's the most scurrilous, defamatory thing you could say about the greatest American who's ever lived. And we're sure you don't <laughs> want to say that anymore. And of course, people are like, you're definitely right. I will never say that again. So, you know, Hoover's aware of those rumors and becomes pretty a little less public about his relationship with Tolson, although not that much less public. So were they having sex with each other? We actually just don't know that. Okay. Would they have described themselves as uh, homosexual? Absolutely not. They were bitterly defended against that in any sort of public sense. But looking at the, the way that they were living their lives, you know, it seems clear to me that they were each other's primary source of affection and support and that neither one of them had any particular interest in dating members of the opposite sex. And so, you know, we might we might characterize them that way. And it's it, it's it's an idea that makes some sense, even though it would have been anachronistic and not the way they identified themselves. You know, so. Is, I, I hate to ask this question because it's I, I know the origin of this and it's probably not true, but you did not find any evidence that Hoover was a cross-dresser because this was something that was Oliver Stern. There's a famous book about like, I think it was a British journalist and it was like, it was kind of debunked in the moment, but maybe just spend a little bit of time just want to make sure that we can just, there, he was not a cross-dresser, right? Or we don't have well, this is that. a very, very famous story about yes. Hoover that, as you say, came out in the in the early 90s in a Hoover biography at that moment. And the story comes from, you know, in particular, a woman who says that she saw 
Hoover in women's clothing at an orgy at the plaza involving Roy Cohn and her husband. And, you know, she did move in those circles. But aside from her claiming that, there is no evidence that this ever occurred. And she is someone who actually served some time in in prison for perjury in an unrelated matter. So she's not a super credible witness. So all we have are kind of scurrilous rumors. Sometimes rumors are true. (laughs) In this case, we just don't have any evidence that 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 is true. And that's what we can say. Okay. Is it possible that if we're trying to understand Hoover on a, a sort of his psychological sexual side, that he was physically asexual, but did he get, I mean, he, he was so obsessed with the sexual, you know, predilections of his friends and adversaries that was, I mean, I don't, I, 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 you're a historian, so I don't want you to ever go beyond what you know, but I mean, is there any evidence that maybe that was it for him, that he was kind of like asexual, but got off on, knowing everybody else's sexual perversions and secrets? Well, look, most people don't go through their lives without having sex with anyone ever. Sure. <laughs> so <laughs> so probably he had sex with someone. And if he did, we can probably figure out who the most likely characters were. But since we don't have access to that information, it's a hard question. I think the most revealing document that I found that talked, that gave me a sense of Hoover and what might be going on internally is that in the early 1950s, because he's such a big public figure, he's on vacation with Tolson in California. They went to California every summer together. And a reporter, unnoticed by them, kind of followed them as they were going around to the farmer's market together and getting ice cream and doing some shopping. Hoover was a big antique collector. And then they stopped in at a bookstore. And this this reporter was able to see what they were buying at the bookstore. And Tolson was buying a couple of, you know, kind of lurid Westerns (laughs) just for fun. Mm -hmm. But Hoover was buying a couple of books of psychology by a psychologist, psychiatrist named Karen Horney, who's very popular sort of psychoanalyst in the in the 40s and 50s. So I went and read these books, and they were really quite moving if Hoover read them and if he was really seeking to understand kind of his own internal war, because they are about a couple of things. They are about how difficult it is if you are someone who is very attached to certain ideas of self-discipline and self-control, that that can really set you up for a lot of craziness and difficulty. And there's no question that Hoover was raised in a tradition where men were supposed to be self-disciplined. They were supposed to exercise self-control in a whole variety of ways. And he absolutely internalized that, came through in that tradition. And then the other really kind of moving part of these books, again, if Hoover read them and and connected with them, was that it was about how hard it can be to be someone who has built up a public image of a kind of defended self, of a very masculine man, right, of all of the things that Hoover that Hoover did and that the actual publicity wing of the FBI was devoted to upholding. But what if that doesn't match who you are inside, right? And the difficulties of being caught in that and the kinds of pathologies that that can produce. And so 
I don't know that he read the books. He bought them, mm. but I would like to think that he did. And it was really quite quite a, a, a moving and thoughtful way of thinking about some of what might have been going on in his internal life. Okay. A few more and then I will let you go. You've been so generous with your time. I want to just hit on the mafia very quickly because you go against a kind of what was a, a, a before a kind of consensus that Hoover was not paying attention to the mafia. He thought it was a local issue. And your 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 research and scholarship says that's just not true. Maybe ex explain that for me. What was the what was Hoover's view of the mafia in the middle of the 20th century? So there's definitely some truth to this idea that Hoover was a little behind the times, particularly on thinking of the mafia as a, a kind of national coordinated syndicate of crime organizations. So that is true. It took him a little while to come around to that. 1957, there's this famous moment. Um, the Appalachian. Police, yes. exactly, in, in upstate New York, sort of stumble upon what turns out to be actually a gathering of a national crime syndicate, right? right? And all of these mob bosses sort of <laughs> sitting around having dinner together. So after that, you know, Hoover's like, okay, well, it turns out, I guess that exists. But I think there are two pieces of the organized crime story that do give Hoover a little more credit than he's often given. So one is that in the 1950s, the FBI begins conducting what are often secret operations mm. in an attempt to infiltrate organized crime, particularly the mob in Chicago. But they want to keep these secret, and they actually get a couple of very important bugs and wiretaps in. And uh, This is Sam but, Giancana, and this is, how, right, right, and this is right. how Hoover learns about Kennedy's paramour, right? I mean, this is... <laughs> right. Ultimately, this takes, I mean, as many FBI investigations did, it takes them in directions they don't quite anticipate, which yes. is, it turns out that John Kennedy and Sam Giancana, mm -hmm. who was the head of the Chicago mob, are sharing a girlfriend in the early 1960s. So they are doing some stuff, but they're keeping it pretty secret. Right. And then Robert Kennedy comes along as attorney general in, in the early 60s in the Kennedy administration. And Robert Kennedy, I think more than anyone, is the one who pushed this idea that the FBI hadn't been doing anything and you need an energetic, young, fabulous, far-seeing attorney general to kind of seize hold of this and really make it happen. So there's no question that there is an escalation under Robert Kennedy. But I think Hoover both had a more nuanced view of the whole thing and the FBI was doing a little more than people necessarily okay. give them credit for. Okay, that's very... Now, now I want to kind of get to some big... Big picture questions. All right. So I guess my first question is that there is a kind of, I, I would call it a lazy critique of some that I would associate more on the left that would say the FBI in the 20th century was just an American Stasi or, you know, something like that. I What do you make of that kind of claim? And because I don't think that's true, but I, I defer to you, you know. Well, the conceit of the book and the sort of political puzzle of the book right. is to look at Hoover as being someone who is not a rogue operator and who is not a one-dimensional figure. So the book puts him pretty firmly in two political traditions. One is sort of a progressive view of the use of the state, of bureaucracy, of the administrative state. And, and bringing science to, to, to crime stopping, like the idea that you're going to learn from 
the advances in other areas and apply it to policing and things like that. It's a very exactly right. professional career yeah. government service that you're going to have experts who are trained in science and the law, who are college educated professionals, who are going to be good servants of the government and of the public. And right. he is very much a part of that tradition. Now, he violates it in certain ways, but he is yeah. a true believer in that kind of expert tradition, in that tradition of career government service, in the power of the state, in all of those things. And he is at the same time a kind of avenging social conservative, right, <laughs> around questions of communism and race and religion. And what he does is put those two things together and kind of creates this conservative bureaucracy. But I guess I would say a couple of things. One, that because he has this kind of liberal professional side, or at least progressive professional side, for most of his career, he's incredibly popular, and he's incredibly popular even among establishment liberals. So, so he has democratic legitimacy that the East German Stasi could never possibly have. Exactly. And right. he's got really widespread support. He's a very popular public figure, and he is actually concerned about having this kind of popular constituency. And so some of that is based on the fact that people don't actually know everything that he's doing. But I think the fact that he had such widespread support pushes back a little bit against that idea. And then the other would be that he is actually someone who at various points in his career recognized real limits at moments when it wasn't always so easy to do so. So he was one of the few federal government, high-ranking federal employees who right, against criticized Japanese internment. Right. Yep. He was critical of Joseph McCarthy. He did not think actually that laws should be passed outlawing the Communist Party because he thought that that would uh, be problematic. So he has these moments where he himself he opposed is also the Houston recognizing. And the Nixon, right. right which in was... the Nixon administration, he weirdly is like a civil libertarian <laughs> in the Nixon administration. So he, he does have some recognition of limits. Those were often based around. Okay. But if I can just push a little bit, and I'm not really pushing back, but I want to just complicate. Yeah. I mean, Harry Truman, John F. Kennedy. I mean, there are American presidents who privately confide to their aides or in letters. I mean, like there's a letter from Truman, I think back to Bass, where he says, this guy is going to create an American Gestapo and everybody in Congress is afraid of him. And yet they never fire him. <laughs> so, I mean, that that kind of is that's a frightening dynamic that there would be a civil servant, a bureaucrat that was so powerful that a president was kind of afraid of him. Right. Right. And so the the pieces that I was just saying, they're sort of moments of complication. Yeah. Right. And saying we have to think about him as a more complicated figure. But I think it is fundamentally true that there was something incredibly dangerous in having a single figure as the head of your you know, domestic political law enforcement and intelligence agency for 48 years, that Hoover was incredibly careful and effective about keeping the FBI outside of almost all mechanisms of formal accountability. He got to pick his own agents outside of the civil service process. He created them in his own vision. It was almost like a cult of personality with that he could fire and hire them at will. There were no mechanisms of congressional uh, authority, really, over the FBI, aside from annual appropriations. And Hoover built this massive, incredibly powerful bureaucracy in his own political vision. And what the FBI enforced 
for almost his full time at the head of the FBI was his vision of what was legitimate in American politics and what was illegitimate in American politics. And that meant that vast swaths of people on the left came under government surveillance, though they were doing nothing illegal. Some portion of people on the far right as well, and that he used the FBI to defend his own power. So all of that fear in mm. Congress, among presidents, elsewhere in the government, you know, the FBI was defending J. Edgar Hoover, creating J. Edgar Hoover, and defending itself with these very powerful, very disturbing tools. So Hoover was, I think, a person who you know, kind of enforced his own vision of what the United States was supposed to be. And I don't think that that's what we want our federal law enforcement officials doing. We don't want that kind of autonomy that he stepped far outside the law in many cases. To okay, do my last question here. And again, it's, I, I, I'm not, it's not meant to push back. It's just meant to sort of complicate and, and to tease out. Mm -hmm. Is, are these problems that you've just described so eloquently about the FBI how uncomfortable we are with it having that kind of power. Is that a problem because Hoover was such an effective bureaucrat? Or does is this the nature of having a modern domestic intelligence agency, particularly one that's under the same roof of a national law enforcement or national police? So can you separate? I mean, would 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 these kinds of things been inevitable, even if we didn't have a, an FBI director as skilled and cunning as J. Edgar Hoover? Or really was it because J. Edgar Hoover was so good at this and he had such a great antenna and he understood bureaucracy and he understood, he understood power so well? I would say there are elements of both. So particularly in the 1930s and 40s when the FBI really ramps up its intelligence gathering, you weren't going to go into the Second World War and then the Cold War without probably some form of federal sure. domestic intelligence existing, right? There were actually some good reasons for it. But in any case, whether you think it should have existed or not, it was just extraordinarily unlikely that you were going to fight the Second World War and not have the federal government looking for you know, subversion and sabotage and all of the things that the FBI comes into. So that certainly would have existed. I think what Hoover did was a couple of things. One is because he was there at that moment, a fairly well-respected public servant at that moment, he's able to put together two things that don't necessarily go together. One is federal law enforcement and the other is intelligence, right? And those are both fused at the FBI, largely because he was the guy there with the administrative capacity to do it right. in these moments of emergency when it came along. Um, but that didn't necessarily have to be the case. And of course, the FBI's law enforcement role is a lot less controversial than its political intelligence role, or at least was at the time. Uh, and the other thing that I would say is once the FBI took on political intelligence, you know, that could have had a lot of different methods and visions associated with it. And because Hoover was there because he had the ideas that he had, because he had the training that he had, and he was able to build the bureaucracy. I think that piece of things really reflected his own politics and his own, his own ideas in ways that shaped practically 
every aspect of American politics from the 50s through the 70s. No social movement in the United States had its history unaltered by the FBI. And that was well, I mean, Hoover's to, decision and to, Hoover's image. To put a point on it, if Hoover wasn't there, I mean, well, I mean, we sort of have a little bit of this because after Hoover dies, Mark Felt takes it upon himself to spy on the Weather Underground and a Palestinian group in Dallas. So there is a kind of sense where if you're going to have a domestic intelligence agency, guess what? They're, they're going to spy on probably people for equivalent of thought crimes that are falling out of whatever the mainstream is. And I take your point that Hoover in this period is, in his career, is defining what is the acceptable center of American politics on these kind of questions of national security, because he's also kind of a, celebra- a celebrity of sorts. But at the same time, I mean, it's just you can you sort of see it. I mean, and to this day, we, we have, you know, FISA scandals today with the FBI and things like that. So we created reforms in some ways looking at the bad old days, but we're still facing some of the same problems. Or is that overstated? Right. Well, one of the things that also yeah. happens after Hoover's mm-hmm. death that you've made reference to are the intelligence investigations and then the intelligence yeah. reforms that happen in the 1970s, largely through the Church Committee. So that established, I think, at least better structures of accountability, some of which were undone in the Patriot Act and sure. the moments around around 9-11. But nonetheless, compared to the fact that there were none of them right? <laughs> that's a very, that's a great during point, Hoover's yeah. era, I think we we do have more constraints. But yeah, I think the the stamp that Hoover put on the FBI is still in in many ways with us with us today. Okay. So well, to button up the conversation, let me let me ask it like this. Are civil liberties violations inevitable if you want domestic intelligence? That we can try to reform it. We can we can maybe minimize, but we're going to just we're, that's just it's going to come with the territory or is or can we keep striving to perfect ourselves and get it just right, you know, and, and have the best of both worlds, so to speak? Yeah, I'm not sure that those two things are in contest with each other, which is to say that when you are dealing with questions of domestic intelligence, whether you're talking about terrorism, you're talking about political movements, the question of civil liberties and of protecting speech, of figuring out the right boundaries, of figuring out how you're going to decide who is dangerous and who is not, is that going to be simply dictated by criminal activity? Is it going to be dictated by what they are, simply the ideas they're expressing, et cetera? There are not easy lines to draw, but the cautions of history are that you need to really, really pay attention to those lines, that it's incredibly easy to overstep and to violate rights like free speech to constrain what should be a set of open political conversations. And so that question ought to be at the forefront and not ever assumed to be settled and something that we're taking really seriously. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Gage. This was a real honor for me. I really recommend this book. I think you've, you've, you've done a great service to the Republic of Letters. So thank you very much. Great. Well, thanks. This is fun. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing. 